Welcome to the Dr. Lori Morris podcast, where she interviews experts in health and science, sharing their expertise so you can live your healthiest life. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by Fit Vegan Coaching, the world's leading whole food plant-based body recomposition program for Gen X and baby boomers. Founded by Maxime, whose personal journey began after losing his ex-fiance to breast cancer, Fit Vegan Coaching is on a mission to disease-proof the world through the transformative power of plant-based eating and fitness. This program is the Rolls Royce of plant-based coaching, offering all-inclusive services, personalized plans, world-class accountability, lifelong support, and more. Say goodbye to the yo-yo dieting and embrace a lasting transformation that will rev up your metabolism even post-transformation. Ready to take charge of your health and vitality? Head over to fitvegan.ca, that's fitvegan.ca, and mention Dr. Lori for exclusive bonus savings when you sign up. Don't miss this opportunity to join the movement towards a healthier, fitter, and more vibrant you. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by The Healing Kitchen, your path to vibrant health. Immerse yourself in the transformative program, guided by the combined expertise of myself, Dr. Lori Marbus, and Chef Brittany Giroudi, who has lost 70 pounds on a whole food plant-based diet. Here's what's in store for you. Virtual weekly sessions. Engage in an immersive 60-minute virtual session every single week, where you'll delve into the world of wholesome plant-based goodness right from your own kitchen. Cooking with Brittany the first half hour. Unleash your inner chef as you're captivated by Chef Brittany Giroudi's culinary mastery that will delight your taste buds and nourish your body. Medical Q&A with Dr. Lori the last half hour. Prioritize your well-being during the second half hour. I will personally address your medical inquiries, providing evidence-based insights and personalized advice, empowering you to make informed choices for your health. So join us on the Healing Kitchen to help you step into a healthier and most vibrant future. Welcome back to the podcast. We are going to continue our discussion that we started last week with Catherine Van Tassel, all about food addiction. And today we're going to discuss a little bit deeper detail about how do you know if you actually have food addiction? Do you have a problem or you just have some moments in life that you like to consume highly palatable foods, but you're okay? So, okay, Catherine, take it away. How do we know if we have food addiction? Yes. (laughs) So not everybody is going to have a food addiction and not everybody who overeats from here, you know, one moment in time, a couple of times a year has a food addiction. So I think it is important because we also don't want to put foods in this very black and white, bad or good. We know that that can create disordered eating patterns. And so um, really having grace ourselves and understanding of Um, how our body works, our cultural systems work, our own like little um, cultures in our own homes and um, at work, how we can navigate that and understand. Um, But maybe for you, it would be kind of fun. Tell me some of the foods that you may or would overeat. um, Oh, yeah. How you manage that. Yes. Because everybody's at risk. All right. So there's something about mint. I don't know why, but that chocolate and the mint piece together or chocolate and peanut butter. So this, first of all, how I navigate is it's just not in the house. <laughs> so it's gotten so bad to the point that, like I had mentioned earlier, 
the Girl Scouts chocolate Thin Mint cookies. They're vegan. That when my kids were in high school, particularly Gabe, my youngest one, he would see <laughs> the little girls. Oh, I mean, they're like pushing their their drugs of choice. You're like, mom, we're going to go in the other door because we can't allow you to go past here because I know you'll eat an entire box. And I'm like, <laughs> so now my children are helping me navigate my addiction. So yes, I literally have to avoid walking by them because they're cute. You want to help, you want to donate. <laughs> and then you eat these delicious wafery chocolate mint. See, I'm salivating just even thinking about it. But that would be my food of choice. Or, or anytime we go to the movies, man, those little junior mints in the, the big box, they just kind of melt in your mouth. Yeah, that's that's my other tool. And on occasion, I'll want like a chocolate peanut butter thing that's vegan. You know, they have brands that are vegan. I don't do those very often, but uh, man, the chocolate mint. Mm -mm -mm. Yeah, so I am just like you. Um, <laughs> it's not um, it's not Girl Scout cookies or Junior Mint. Um, mine would be I love like rich like cheesecake or um ice cream, and you know, now they make vegan items like that that are so good because they use like cashew milk or oat milk or, and I cannot have that in my house. And again, this isn't because there's something wrong with either of us. You and I are incredibly healthy people. Right. Um, and have every awareness of, you know, we're going to feel helping people with this. Mm -hmm. Um, but our brain, right. Which we talked oh. about in the previous episode, like we have a reward pathway. We are biologically set up for that. When you were saying your kids are like, we got to go a different way around this. <laughs> yes. because even if you don't eat the thin mints you're going to release dopamine into your brain, which is going to motivate you. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. This is how we lose control. Yeah. Um, so for some people, it sounds extreme. Like I can't have this in my house. And I was like, well, why do I want to set myself up to fail? Like, right. I know what's going to happen to me. Right. I know. Um, but then, okay. I never want to be like bad news bears about everything no chocolate, no, you know, ice cream, no, any of this ever again for the rest of your life. And I think about like your mint, you really like mint. Well, mint is good for you. You know, what about making a smoothie with um, like spinach and banana, um, some cacao powder, and then putting mint leaves in it. Mm -hmm. um, I've made smoothies like that, that are fantastic. Um, for me, I also like banana chocolate. So making nice cream, um, I'll do that. It's like, we don't have to not enjoy the things that we love. We just have to understand it and navigate it in a different way. Right. Making different choices, different substitutions. So one of my favorite things to make for the holidays, it's much richer in calories. So I don't make it very often. I just usually do it for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I usually end up with one slice is Kim Campbell's. She has a sweet potato chocolate pie. Oh my goodness. It's delicious. And it's all healthy stuff, but it's like nuts and dates. And so it's very <laughs> calories. And it's certainly not something that I'd partake in on a regular basis. But man, it's, a, it's such a lovely thing to consume, knowing that there's still whole foods. And you're only going to do this a few times a year. But Jonathan, my middle kid, he'll eat. He's like, mom, are you making that 
sweet potato thing again because dang it's good like he'll eat an entire pie by itself if <laughs> you don't get a bite but you know those are the things you can do like you said and try to substitute the flavors in the coming so you don't feel deprived and I don't feel deprived I just find it I honestly it's more of a comical thing at this point because I've made such fun of myself with people that they enjoy harassing me which kind of gets you to a story that I shared with you earlier before we started recording was when I still worked uh, in rifle, I everyone knew I couldn't buy these thin chocolate mint cookies because I would eat the entire box in half an hour. Like, I mean, there's a lot of little cookies in there and it's ridiculous, right? And so I would donate the money. Like if someone's kiddo or somebody was selling these, I would donate $20 and, you know, my brain would be, okay. I've donated, I've supported, you know, everything that Girl Scouts is about, but I didn't buy my favorite drug of choice. And someone bought a box of those cookies and set them on my desk. And I was, had some very interesting emotional responses to this. So this is kind of like one of my colleagues, nobody fessed up, was trying to sabotage <laughs> me. But I think it's because one, I'm always trying to be the model of making better choices because if I don't feel if I walk the walk, how do I, I shouldn't have the right to help someone else. I just struggle with that mentally for myself. You know, someone else may think differently, but that's just how I work. That's how I'm wired. I've always been that way. And so I make it very clear that I'm not partaking. So then I'm thinking to myself, why would someone do that? This is the same thing as someone's married to a partner who maybe does that. And I think of two reasons. One, someone maybe they just really don't like me wants to see me fail flat on on my face I think it's funny or two maybe it goes a little bit deeper seated reason that for them personally and so that they don't feel as bad about their own choices because they see me reflecting healthier different choices then they feel in a weird sort of way judged in a sense like well I guess I'm not meeting up to that so they're doing their part maybe even if they think it's comical to you know bump me off my my journey of health so again maybe I'm thinking too much into it but I certainly think there is a part of that but so what I did was I took that opened it opened up the sleeves dumped them in the trash because if I had put the whole box in there that box would have been talking to me all day long saying take me out just have one it's okay Lori you can have one and then, well, you ate one. What's wrong with two? Well, you want three. Eat the whole sleeve. Oh, eat the whole box and you'll be done with me. So this is literally how my brain starts thinking about these things. <laughs> it's like, I can't. So if I open it up, dump the cookies in the trash can, it's touched other trash. My brain goes, that is obviously <laughs> not available anymore. And I'm, then I'm not being called to all day long. But that's literally how it played out in my brain. Yeah, I'm, I got issues. You don't have issues. This is exactly how those foods are engineered, right? It's <laughs> yes. engineered to do that. You would never uh, do that with broccoli, cauliflower, carrots, blueberries. Well, kale chips, you know, that's that's be quite, it is, it is, it's quite delicious. Yeah. Yeah. No, those baked kale chips, those can be quite pretty good too. So yeah, but you're talking about the whole raw food. The, I think the only food that I might do this with and like I could eat literally crates of or blueberries <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I can eat watermelon until oh I, watermelon that's another one yeah, yeah. watermelon okay yeah. so this okay. sets us up for our um Yale food addiction uh, okay scale. so anybody who's listening and you're thinking about this um think about this in two different buckets okay having a you know being um going through this scale and actually seeing oh I may really struggle with uh a diagnosable food addiction. And again, we said this isn't in the DSM, this is new, but we do have this um, scale that has been developed to use. But then there's the other bucket of, I may struggle around certain foods and they be, may be negatively impacting our life. And that is this example that both Laurie and I are talking about, um, that you don't have to fit all of these boxes to have negative impacts, but recognizing it and then making different change. And again, understanding we need to have grace with ourselves. These are engineered foods to make us do that. Um, so this isn't willpower. Willpower doesn't exist here. Our brains want to keep us alive and they're perfect, perfect, perfect. So, okay, I'm going to ask you some questions, Laurie. All right, yeah, um, let's go for it. Okay, perfect. So <clears throat> this survey, when it's asking you about your eating habits, it's um, difficulty controlling the intake. And what's interesting is it specifies um, it's on uh, they're not foods like blueberries. So don't ever think about blueberries when you're answering this. It's for sweets like ice cream, chocolate, donuts, cookies, cake, candy, ice cream, starches like white bread, rolls, pasta, and pizza, salty snacks like chips, pretzels, and crackers, high fat foods, so, so think steak bacon, hamburgers, cheeseburgers, pizza, and French fries, and then sugary drinks like soda pop. So those are the foods that you're thinking when I ask you these questions, not blueberries. <laughs> um, okay. When, um, and I'm not going to read all of them because there's quite a few, but we'll get a number. We'll do a few of them. And then if anybody's interested, they can go online and this is free to, to do. Um, so I find that when I start eating certain foods, I end up eating more than plant. And again, thinking of starches, sweets, fatties, fatty foods, and sugary drinks. Mm -hmm. So the scoring is never once a month, two to four times a month, two to three times a week, or four or more times daily. Maybe um, once a month, not even then. But this would be when we go out to eat at a Mexican restaurant with chips and salsa or thin mint cookies. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I feel, I find myself continuing to consume certain foods, even though I'm no longer hungry. Probably. Mm, mm, maybe is it still like once a month, that type of thing? Yeah. Never once a month, two to four times a month, two to three times a week or four or more times. Eight. Maybe like once a quarter. So once a month, I guess. Not yeah. never. Um, I eat to the point where I feel physically ill. Never. I won't go that far. Okay. Um, not eating certain types of food or cutting down on certain types of food is something I always worry about. Yeah. Okay. I spend a lot of time feeling sluggish or fatigued from overeating. Never. Okay. I find that when certain foods are not available, I will go out of my way to obtain them. 
So for example, you would drive to the store to purchase a certain food, even though you have other foods at home that you could eat. The only food I do that for are blueberries and my frozen, like my, <laughs> my greens for my smoothie because I don't have my smoothie. I'm not happy. <laughs> so <laughs> probably never because I'm not thinking about those foods. Yeah. I don't go buy them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll do a couple more. Um, there have been times when I've consumed certain foods so often in such large quantities that I started, um, to eat food instead of working, spending time with family or friends or engaging in other important activities or recreational activities I enjoy. No, I, it's too much of a workout in my jaw. <laughs> yeah. Um, there have been times when I consumed certain foods. So, oh, whoops, we read that one. Um, there have been times when I've avoided professional or social situations where certain foods were available because I was afraid I would overeat. So it's not because I was afraid I'd overeat, but I probably wouldn't go because I didn't want to deal with the people giving me judgment on me not eating those foods. So no, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that this is interesting because if anyone here has ever, um, suffered from addiction, whether that's a process addiction, a substance use addiction, or known somebody who has, these really cross over into yeah. that, right? Yeah. Like we can see this, how that would be. This preoccupation. So, um, or going out of your way or doing it, um, engaging in a behavior despite negative outcome, mm. um, isolation. It can be shopping. Avoiding. It could be all sorts of things. So people need to think about what they're doing on their phone, right? Playing games, looking, you know, desk scrolling through Instagram, online shopping. So this could be, you know, not even just the food, but a lot of these things make sense, right? You're doing it so much. It's become harmful. Exactly. And um, I mean, this even goes on to say I've had withdrawal symptoms. So mm. we see that in substance or process addictions, just like you were talking about. Um, or eating to prevent feelings. So what we would consider negative feelings of anxiety, agitation. Um, so, um, you know, avoidance of an emotion. Um, and then this one, my behavior um, with respect to food and eating causes significant distress. So if somebody were to come in and see me um, and this, you could almost put anything in addiction here and it would be diagnosable for that. Like you were saying, either a process or a substance use addiction. Which makes me think about it when you were saying that that statement before about how food negates a unpleasant feeling or stress. Mm -hmm. It made me think about what we do for our kids, right? So if they're having a tantrum or struggling or anything we give them some type of sweet treat right because we think that they deserve it because they are you know struggling and this will help calm them down or they did something well and that's in a reward um so we're actually starting very early in life with this attachment to these highly palatable foods and that sense of pleasure either continuing the reward because we did something well or getting away from the negatives, right? So you have that negative avoidance and that positive reinforcement um, starting very early in life. 
I think that that is such a good point and such a good point to stress because so many people are parents, right? Or we've been kids. So this pretty much crosses anybody. Um, and I think every single one of us can remember, um, oh, you did good. Let's go get ice cream or you're feeling bad. Let's get a treat. Or you think about the doctor, go to the doctor, get a shot. Here's a lollipop. Um, and, and now that we have this understanding that we talked in the previous podcast of how that sets up your brain and your reward system, and we can downregulate our reward, um, to certain foods that are highly palatable. If you start that at the, you know, early in life, how does that play out then over the course, if you're never given education, you don't understand this. That's why we're seeing, you know, chronic disease. It's now in childhood that we never saw before. Um, so yeah. I always tell parents like this, you want an amazing gift to give your kids. It's do not let them have any substances before they're 21. If you can do that um, and teach them how to nourish themselves, what an amazing gift. I mean, I think mm. about it for myself. What if I never even developed the taste buds for these kind of foods? Right. Well, it's, it's really funny. So um, I have two stories. One, I had a patient who really struggled to give up soda. And the reason she finally, as we continued speaking about it, because she had diabetes and it was, it was an issue, yeah. well, she had a very positive reinforcement memory with her father when she was little so that they would he would be gone a lot. And then on weekends, they would go to the store and or cafe, camera exact circumstances, but have a soda together. And that memory, so anytime she saw that particular soda, she reminded her of her father who had passed. She reminded her of all the good times, the good feelings that that embraced because she loved her dad so much. So how do you approach that type of situation when you have a substance that someone's engaging in because they want to relive these really positive memories. And then just to the opposite of this, I have some really good friends, Jason and Jen, and they have a little boy, Louie, my favorite. So Jason, they're all plant-based. Jason lost 120 um, pounds on a whole food plant-based diet. He's done like the Leadville 100 several times, also an ultra runner, crazy people. And anyway, one time we were, we were uh, staying together in, in uh, Colorado and this one place and I was cooking and I had set aside a bell pepper and I turned around and I went back to grab it and it was gone. And I hear this crunch behind me <laughs> and little Louie, who's all of like three at this point, he's just chowing down on this. And I have a picture of it. It's such a delight. Just chowing down on this red bell pepper because it is to him, it's like an apple or anything else. And I was like, are you enjoying that? He goes, yeah, you want a bite? <laughs> <laughs> so here we are. We have two very different situations. So Louie will have these wonderful, you know, discussions and memories of eating healthy, whole plant foods, go through life with decreased risk of chronic disease. But then we have some others like, you know, struggling to break an addiction cycle because of this memory that's so strong um you know smells can do it like any time of like mentholatum you know that mentholatum like stuff that your grandma used to rub on you 
yeah. if I smell mentholatum, I think immediately my mom and my grandmother, because they literally put it on themselves every single night. <laughs> I mean, so these like, these provoke these really amazing things in our brain. So if you have someone who has this emotional attachment to something that is being regarded as harmful, how do we how do we approach that conversation or how do they approach it? Maybe this goes to our next conversation, but would that be considered a problem? Yeah. I mean, for like in children and, and raising your kids. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Or if you have someone in adulthood now at this point, right? So maybe they also partake in, you know, again, or maybe they, they, the food is the one thing they had control of, right? When they were children. So I had one patient that would tell me <clears throat> she used to hide in closets when she was younger and eat candy bars and stuff that she could get hold of because it made her feel better and in control because there was so much chaos in her home environment that that was the one thing that she felt like she could control and had some peace. So when you now leave that as an adult, that is how you've learned your your mechanism to deal with stress is eating. How do you even approach that piece to it? I mean, that just yeah. seems such an overwhelming task to, to take on by yourself. I will say this. I think it is, um, it's less overwhelming once you have the knowledge. Mm. And when we go into our third part about this on treatment, there are so many different ways to approach this especially once you understand it and you remove the guilt and shame. Guilt and shame in addiction, in any addiction process, just drives the behavior. It continues people in that cycle. And so once we have this understanding of what we're talking about now, understand biologically how I'm driven to do this, how I am in my environment driven to do this, how the system is, you know, with these highly palatable foods that are cheap and everywhere, um, okay, now I have my, I, this isn't, this isn't me. This isn't this willpower. It's not, I'm driven to do this. I have to have to make different choices. And then the behavioral aspect, the emotional part, where did this come from? How was I taught this? How am I coping with this with stress? This way we talked about the stress, um, loop in our brain from frontal to amygdala to the hippocampus. It is much easier once you understand that. But the problem is, is we're not given any of that knowledge, right? What are we, what's the knowledge that we're given in our society? Um, here's ketogenic, here's paleo, here's Adkins, here's carnivore, here's, I mean, you just could. Yeah, so it looks like we had a little bit of a technical hiccup there you dropped off, but can we get back to, you were speaking to knowledge once we have knowledge it's not as a big a bear to conquer so to speak how would you address that yeah um you know i was talking about how addiction feeds this guilt and shame um and really keeps us trapped in those processes um but once we have this knowledge and ability we get to make different choices um and i think that this is we see this like um, uh, in a patients that I have um, treated for addiction, um, they will always tell me that the most difficult substance to um, to break from is food. 
So um, people that have had addictions to heroin, to cocaine, you name it, which you would think in, oh my gosh, that would be incredibly difficult, which it is. Um, but the system is so different, right? It's okay to say, I'm never having cocaine again. I'm never having um, heroin again, but you can't say I'm never going to eat food again. Um, and so when we're recognizing, oh, I want to change my relationship with food, um, this can be very difficult. But now we understand, okay, there are all these different ways that I can be impacted. And once I'm understanding how my brain is impacted by this, um, and that it's behavioral change, let's do that. Oh, and the thing that I was talking about before I think I froze was that once people have been told, okay, you need to make changes because food may, may be um, negatively impacting your life. You've been diagnosed with a chronic health condition or your weight's negatively impacting you. What is the first thing people do? Well, I've got to go on a diet. And what are the diets that are out there? Um, well, there's a zillion of them. You just choose. I mean, there's everything from like a cookie diet to the keto diet, to the carnivore diet, to I mean, we know this, we've seen this story play out over and over and over again. It was the cabbage soup diet and slim fats when I was in high school. You know, that was when I went on my first diet. And we just see this backfire over and over and over again. And we just don't learn our lesson, right? Because we, we are put up against all of these, um, all of these mechanisms, but until we have the understanding and then can change with behavioral change, we won't, we're not going to be successful because we're just set up um, to eat these foods over and over and over again. Which is great. So I think we're going to get to the how to overcome the food addiction, or at least start the path towards recovery from that in our next interview. But I wanted to speak to guilt and shame because, you know, I think as humans, we have these emotions for a reason, right? They were probably there for particular reasons. So if we feel guilty, it makes us not want to do something again, but then the shame makes us like there's something wrong with us. So how does that continue to keep us perpetuating us within the same cycle when you think about it logically, maybe I'm, I'm missing the, the, the point here. And I certainly don't want people to feel shame, yeah. um, but how does that continue to feed into it? Is it just because they like give up or is it like a like, how does that continue to feed and perpetuate the cycle? Or do they struggle to find the strength to, not even strength, the ability to remove themselves from that cycle, this destructive cycle in any, any type of addiction? So if you can help me understand that from someone who's, dead, who's not inside the mental health arena. Yeah, um, there was a beautiful article that I read in the LA Times um, just yesterday um, about Matthew Perry's death. So um, for those of you who don't know who Matthew Perry is, he was one of the um, uh, one of the actors in the hit show Friends. I mean, everybody loved him. And then sadly, we watched his struggle with addiction play out throughout his life. And it was really interesting because they were talking about this and it was from the perspective of somebody who is in long-term recovery. Um, and I love hearing this from people that are in recovery because they've lived experience. Um, but they were... What um, he was saying is that we needed to not look at, because everybody wants to know what the autopsy report is going to come back and say, that we're so you know obsessed about that. But what he was saying is that we needed to have a different focus on this. And this goes into the guilt and shame that you were talking about and why people stay in that. 
because we're always wanting to know what the end outcome is instead of what that process is. And when somebody relapses, which relapse is really a part of addiction, food addiction and substance addiction, right? Like, just like you said, like I can be going along, cooking along, I'm doing really good. And then whoops, there goes a whole sleeve of thin mint cookies. But what do you do to continue to go back to your healthy way? That happened. I'm not inherently bad. I'm not weak. I'm going to now eat my smoothie tomorrow, or I'm going to go for a walk, or I'm going to eat a salad at the next meal. However, when you're in this addiction cycle with shame and guilt, you don't make that decision of like, no, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm a great person. What you hear in your brain is, well, you failed, so you might as well keep going. Any days that you had free of the foods that you were choosing not to eat, the substances you are not using for, um, uh, choosing to use, that basically wiped all of that out because guilt, shame, I'm a bad person, I'm horrible, I'll never succeed. See, I tell people what I'm gonna do and I can't do it. So that's it, I'm just gonna keep going. And you just keep, why, why, why get better? I'm gonna fail again, I better keep going. This is even like a small um, example of that was like you eat one and you're like, oh, I ate one, I might as well eat two because I've already messed up. Um, I'm guilty, right? I've got my hand in the cookie jar, just like a little kid. I'm guilty. I've screwed it up. I just have to keep going. And so whatever that internal dialogue that somebody has for themselves, that's just internal dialogue. That is really very, very important to, I think, highlight is the internal dialogue that we have to ourselves. So, you know, I have an obsession with Dr. Shad Helmstein and (laughs) what to say when you speak to yourself, right? Because when we're growing up, we learn language of English or Spanish or whatever the cultural language is in our region that we live in this world. But we learn other things that are maybe more subtle that we don't quite understand until we get older and really sit down and think about it is how do we speak to ourselves? How do we refer to ourselves? What is our judgment of ourselves and others? And it's such a powerful thing to understand that you can change that internal dialogue and that gives you the tools to do it. It's almost like the smoker, right? So the smoker who says, I'm not a smoker. And then you have someone who's also trying to stop smoking. He's like, well, I'm going to try to stop smoking today. You know, I'm, these are my, I'm going to put it away and I'm just going to continue it. But the difference here is this belief in how they, they speak to themselves. They, their quit date was the same day, but the one person who says, I'm not a smoker is not, is more likely not to smoke versus someone who's like, well, I'm still a smoker, still identifying with it, but I'm going to try to quit. So now we're relying on that willpower, right? So I think that's such a powerful thing. I did a live a few days ago that really resonated with people. So it was speaking to the words I am and how these really are your foundational, powerful words. So when you speak to yourself, I am guilty or I am strong or I am courageous or I am weak, I am anxious, I am in control of the situation we literally will live up to whatever we're telling ourselves that is what we are. So the brain's like, okay, it's just doing what it does. If it says that you're hungry, I am hungry. It's going to help you look for food. I am strong. Well, you're going to start doing those things that help you become more capable and more strong. So that's kind of where I think that 
mindset and how we speak to ourselves is so very, very powerful. I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, we see this in aspects of positive psychology, right? There's an Mm. exercise of setting yourself up for the best day. And you imagine yourself going through this day, making all the decisions that you hoped you would make um, for that. And visualization is incredibly powerful when we look at making health changes. Um, And, you know, I always say this to my patients, it's like my stoplight theory. And you've heard me say this before. Um, We've all been driving mindlessly um, and almost, or maybe ran a stop sign or a red light, right? And what do you do immediately? Whoa, I better pay attention. Like, I'm glad I didn't get hurt. That was really scary. I'm going to really pay attention now. With food, we don't do that, right? It's this, what are, what we tell ourselves. So whatever that internal dialogue is, you ate X food that is a bad food because we give everything a label. Um, and well, screwed up. I might as well just keep going. And I, we would never do that. We would never keep running the red lights. Like I screwed up one, let's keep going through them. Um, but we will do that with food. Mm. Um, yeah. Which is really interesting because we have really negative outcomes from eating a lot of food. Um, so this, this is, this is why I love the CGM, right? The continued glucose monitor. So even someone who's not even necessarily uh, pre-diabetic or diabetic, but it's obviously very powerful for those is to have these conversations. So I run the glucose mastermind, right? So we have people who are non-diabetic, pre-diabetic, full-blown diabetic, doesn't matter. It's a conversation on understanding that our food choices have consequences. And there's that immediate feedback and it's a non-judgmental feedback. It's just your body saying, this is what you do when when you eat pizza versus (laughs) a piece of fruit. And so these are the different things that can occur. So I think any tools or technology that we can utilize to make different discussions or change that discussion with ourselves. So that's why I like about Dr. Helmsters. He has this app, the self-talk plus app, yeah. and it's just kind of feeding that loop, right? And like you're saying, visualization, working with someone like yourself who has the skill set to teach us to um, interact with these emotions and respond differently. We're not relying on willpower. So powerful. All the knowledge, the knowledge is power. And maybe this would be a good part for us to talk about what our food system is like. Why yeah. is it hijacking us? Um, yes. And is, you know, this understanding. And I would agree with you just um, for just to, to emphasize your thought on the um, CGM. So I also have played around with the CGM um, because you had told me about it. And um, I was like, this is really interesting. And I'll never forget you said um, when you wore it, you're like, I drove that thing hard. <laughs> I thought that was amazing. And I mean, I did the same thing because I was so interested what's happening inside my body, right? And so it's why I tell patients, let's just gather information right now. All this is, is information we're gathering. Um, how do things make you feel, et cetera. In the CGM, you could see that. And um, what I thought was most interesting, and I remember being one of the things that kind of like a little switch in my brain, like, ooh, I really am gonna watch that. Again, I'm gonna pay attention at the stoplight. I'm gonna be more mindful of this now, not judgment, it's not bad, not good. It's just, this is information. Um, Was eating either too close to when I was 
going to bed or having a food that was maybe either too high in fat or um, just not the healthiest choice, my blood sugar wouldn't go, it would kind of bounce around, right? And I don't have insulin resistance um, or diabetes, but um, I thought, gosh, this is the time sleep. I'm so protective of my sleep, you know, because you're regenerating. It sets you up for the next day, how you're going to feel. Sleep even impacts this in terms of food choices. So people, they've done this in metabolic ward, studied them to see how much they will overeat after a day of not having good sleep. It's about 300 calories that people will overeat after not sleeping well, wow. um, which that's pretty impactful considering that we sleep about two to three hours less than we used to. And a lot of people aren't getting seven to eight hours of sleep at night. And well, why do you do that? Well, it offsets our kind of break and gas in terms of neurotransmitters, um, ghrelin and um, leptin, which ghrelin tells us, oh, you're hungry. And think about grr, like your stomach's growling. Um, and leptin's like, oh, you've had enough. You're good. Um, that gets dysregulated. And uh, I need more because your body's like, I'm tired. I need energy. And guess what? We are not lacking food that has lots of energy. So I remember wearing the CGM and thinking that's really good information because I don't want to have that set me up for failure the next day, right? Same reason of keeping foods out of my house sets me up for failure. That could set me up for failure again. So yeah, I love, I love that. Mm -hmm. CGM is good. Well, let's talk about our food system and tell me, you know, why is it so difficult? <laughs> uh, even, we, this could be a year long worth of podcast, but can you give us a, summary of what the, we're living in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is really, if, if anybody's really interested in that, um, this, there's been a lot of research done, there are books written on this. So I'm not a food researcher. I'm a clinician. Um, but this like, uh, is something that has been really helpful for me, but there are plenty of deep dives that you can do into this. Um, and I think you read the book, book salt, sugar, fat, right? Yeah, I've actually interviewed him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he has done extensive research. And the reason I say this is because this is very well-founded. This isn't, um, uh, conspiracy theory. It's, it's really interesting. Right. So, um, and this is talked about everywhere. So if this is interesting, um, to you, it was to me, so I was like, this is incredible. How did we not know this? Um, but interesting, okay, we know that um, essentially big food has um, taken out of the playbook straight from big tobacco. I mean, and I always want to say this isn't um, a group of people that are like, oh, we're out to get everybody. Like, <laughs> we're going to make everybody sick and die. I know I've said this before and Laurie's like, well, mm, I don't know. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I'll reserve comments. Well, <laughs> What I will say is they're out to make as much money as possible and it doesn't matter what happens to people. This is all consumers and this is all money-driven capitalism, excuse me. This is all capitalism um, without consideration of what happens to other people. So I say it's money-driven and still the outcome is just as bad. And one thing that we saw is, um, and, and uh, tell me a name I forgot of, salt, sugar, fat, Michael, Ma Michael Moss, salt Michael oil. Moss, yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. He was a journalist. Um, yeah. He wrote another book called hooked. It's really good too. Mm -hmm. Is it? Okay. 
So he talks about in his book, how heads of like Pillsbury and Nabisco and some of the big companies got together. Um, and this was in the, it was in 1999 that they um, got together. And the reason that they were getting together is because, you know, people are starting to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't be eating artificial food and artificial sugar and artificial dyes and what's happening. And so the food industry, because again, this is their bottom line, um, thought maybe we should come together and see what we're going to do. And the thought was, you know, like we saw in trans fat, trans fat ended up being removed from foods. Um, they all got together to talk about the implications. We know we're talking about processed meat. The World Health Organization came out saying processed meat is a carcinogenic and, is, and can um, increase your chance of cancer. We're seeing metabolic disease. However, they couldn't come to an agreement. And I mean, they were just basically like, we're not going to do anything about this because they're beholden to the shareholders. Right. That's the bottom line. So all these companies, what they're worried about is not your health. They're worried about making money. Okay. So what do we do to do this? Well, they bring in um, highly trained scientists that are trained in how we behave around food, how we react to food, what will make us eat more food. Um, the fact that this is even a job just like blows my mind right. and how much um, resource, money, jobs, all go into this to get us to eat more and often and a lot. Mm. Um, okay, so that's the goal. How are they doing it? Well, there's a number of ways. Everything for how the grocery store is set up, how lighting is set up, um, makes us eat more or less. They'll put cameras on um, their research subjects. So somebody, you know, they're doing research on it. They'll put a cam, like a helmet camera, send them into a grocery store. Um, so they can track their eyes. They'll, you know, where do people look? Okay. We are going to put our food here. I mean, this is a, this is a dialed in billion dollar industry that has all the resources to make sure we do this. Again, this is just information what is happening to me when I walk out my door, right? If I don't make my house a sanctuary, what is happening? Okay, so I'm gonna talk about salt, fat, and sugar um, and why that's added to our foods. Because I mean, why are we having sugar marinara sauce? We, you don't really need that. Why is sugar almost in every single food in processed foods on the inner aisles? And things that you're like, well, I don't even understand why this is in there. Well, one, make us eat more. And two, the longer shelf life that means that the better their bottom line, right? Things go bad, they have to throw them out. But you can't preserve food without putting this in them because essentially they'll either taste terrible, they'll fall apart, they'll look awful. So, okay, salt. Salt is like essentially flavor bursts and they put that into food. So an example for this would be Cheez-Its. And you could probably take any cracker, but we'll just use Cheez-Its as an example here. So without the salt, it would stick to the roof of your mouth. Now, remember, the whole goal is eat as much as you can, as fast as you can, and keep doing that. Keep doing it. Well, you eat something that gets stuck to the roof of your mouth. You're like, I can't get this down, you know? Sure. No, 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 that's bad news. We need it to go down real easy. Um, so you can't swallow it very well, and that doesn't work. Salt also helps in terms of um, preservative preservatives 
um, and things not tasting bad. So think of frozen waffles. They would essentially be straw without um, salt added to them. You don't want to eat straw, right? So that's not going to help. Um, and then like think of um, processed cereals. So um, some people will taste metal in processed foods and the salt removes that metal taste from it. Um, so we need to add that not because it needs to be there, but because we need to make more money, right? Um, and then fat. Um, okay, so food um, that's processed, the formula for this is about 50% of fat that they need. Um, and you um, get this, what they call a mouth feel from fat. So um, it actually is picked up by um, a nerve in our brain um, and it will travel up and say, hey, this was really good. You need to eat more of it. Um, so this is a great weapon for big food companies. If we put more fat into it, um, we are going to stimulate somebody to eat more um, and have it more often. Um, and then sugar. So <laughs> sugar, this was the most interesting thing I read about this, um, is that essentially sugar is added to a food and tell um, subjects that are study, uh, tell the researchers that are studying the food and they bring in um, subjects to say, hey, is this good? Is this good? Is this good? They will literally add sugar until people say, oh, this is too much. I can't eat any more of this. And then they back it off a little bit and that's it. That's plus how point. much sugar gets added. Yep. That's your plus to the point. Plus point. Yeah. Yeah. So a good example, that would be those uh, Krispy Kreme donuts. I, I've i literally had one bite of one my entire life because it was so sugary that I was like, oh, I, I'm not a sugary type person. I, I prefer the salt and crunchy stuff, but um, man, you're, you're exactly right. So we have <laughs> industry, nothing wrong. I'm, I'm, again, we're not here to say there's anything wrong with capitalism. That's what's made America move forward and have amazing inventions. But when it comes to the point of our health and we're literally killing the population, you might want to back up and think about maybe we should think more social capitalism. That might be a better choice. <laughs> so, but when, yes, it's right. Literally, they're, they're, they're trying to sell things. They've used advertising. Um, they try to get kids hooked early to a brand. Um, again, the reward system. There's so many things going against us, which I think is a great place to, because I know we've been going for a bit here to say we've shown all the problems, we were set up biologically, mentally, emotionally for addiction when it was actually meant to be for survival. And now we've turned it in, we've set ourselves up for addiction. How do we even begin the process of digging ourselves out of this very deep hole? Because there mm -hmm. actually is a light at the end of the tunnel and it'll lead us in that conversation next. Yes. And I always want to say like, Okay, we know we know the facts and this isn't to feel bad, right? So we're not putting any guilt and shame on anybody, but there's hope. Um, yeah. And it is, once you understand this, it's much easier. And there are many different ways you can approach this as well. So if for, you know, one solution doesn't feel good, let's try another. Um, but having this knowledge and now knowing um, the setting um, is going to make it so much easier for success. Essentially, you're going to be set up for success. Perfect. So we're, this will be the piece that I think everyone's going to be like, okay, fast forward to the next one. <laughs> yeah. Just tell <laughs> me what is, to do. Exactly. So thanks everyone for listening and tune in as we will have the final segment here and all about the solutions 
to this very massive problem that we're dealing with and at least get you started down the right path. So thanks again, Catherine, and we'll see you on the next one.